chapter 16. Revelation 16. It's funny when you watch movies and read books and, you know, watch the TV in any way or anything like that, how obsessed the world is with its own demise, right? The end of the world. And so many movies and so much literature and uh, is expended to try to describe this. And there have been theories about how the world will end, you know, as, as long as I can remember, I'm sure as long as many of you can remember. I remember hearing stories about the War of the Worlds radio broadcast. Was that in the 40s, I think? And maybe before that, people were jumping out of windows because they thought it was real and things like that. And so uh, some say global warming will destroy the world now. It's just that the data that moves up every you know couple years, depending on how many votes you need. Um, some believe aliens will invade and destroy mankind. Um, some type of extraterrestrial force. Maybe it'll be another massive meteorite, uh, like the one that allegedly destroyed the dinosaurs. Maybe another ice age will happen. That'll wipe out life as we know it. Then there are some, of course, on the other end of the spectrum that believe the world will never end. It will just go on and on because there is no God and our technology and knowledge and ingenuity as human beings will give us what we need to advance and survive and evolve almost into total perfection. There are those at work in the world right now that are trying to make that happen. And so does the word of God have anything to say about how the world will end? Well, we know the answer to that. But none of us knows the thing we really want to know, if we're honest, me included, and that's when it's going to end. We don't know precisely when the world is going to end, and we won't know that until it finally happens because God has chosen in his providence not to give us that particular information. So make no mistake, however, the scripture very clearly tells us how the world is going to end when the time comes. Now, we should be clear, or at least I want to be clear, when we talk about the end of the world, what I mean when I say that is the end of the world as we know it. Human history in its present form under the curse, life like we know it now will end. In fact, in speaking of the final two chapters of Revelation and their detail on the new heavens and the new earth, Sam Storms writes that God's people will continue to live forever and ever on a new and redeemed earth, an earth that is free from pollution, free from corruption, free from natural disasters, free from the effects of sinful human beings, free from war and pestilence and disease, free from the presence of Satan and his demonic forces, an earth that will be glorified and transformed to serve as the habitation and eternity for those whom Jesus Christ has redeemed and saved by his cross and his resurrection. All that will be built right on top of the ashes of this one. So we don't know specifically when, but we do know a lot about how. And I think most commentators on Revelation agree that there will be an ever-increasing amount of demonic activity in the world the closer we get to the end, Satan's influence over the world will increase. Idolatry, immorality will worsen, will increase. The persecution of Christians will intensify and spread as worldly powers assault us. And at some point in the future, maybe in our lifetime, maybe very soon, maybe not in our lifetime, maybe not very soon, Satan will be permitted, as I understand it, by God to unleash one final global Massive assault on the church of Jesus Christ, trying one last time to wipe us out forever. But just as that darkness is about to envelop everyone and everything, Jesus Christ will crack the sky. He will return on the clouds of heaven with the angels and the multitudes of his redeemed people. Call us up to himself and he will destroy his enemies for the last time, bringing his final and decisive judgment against all those who have rejected and defied and mocked his name. We differ on a lot of the details. I understand that. But we all believe that when all is said and done, we win. And so Revelation 16 speaks to the last ditch effort of Satan now. Or alludes to it. This last war. It brings us to the final descriptions of divine judgment and wrath against the wicked world that we've been reading about for so long now. We've studied the cycle of seven seal judgments. 
then seven trumpet judgments. Now we come to the final cycle of seven judgments, the seven bull judgments. So let's try to get our bearings here on where things stand in Revelation. Again, as I understand it here, all three cycles of seven judgments, seals, trumpets, and bowls, reveal events that happen repeatedly throughout the time between the first and second comings of Christ. That's why John gives us so that it's living for the church in all times, relevant to every form of the church in history. We get these um, three cycles in Revelation, three different camera angles, if you will, on the end, showing us the scope of human history and what it will be like right up until Jesus returns. But all three cycles of seven judgments bring us, all three of them bring us to the close of human history and the judgment of unbelievers as well as to the final salvation and victory of believers in Christ, and, of course, the full manifestation of His kingdom. I believe the vision of Jesus in Revelation 1 and Revelation 4 gives us a a sense of the time we're talking about in the book of Revelation. It tells us that at least the first six of the seal, trumpet, and bull judgments were released by Jesus Christ at His ascension, To the Father's right hand. So Revelation is written from the perspective of Christ having risen and ascended to the Father, where he sits now at God's right hand. That's who is speaking. This is the revelation John is given from him from heaven. These judgments show us what human history is going to be like because Jesus now reigns and is spreading the gospel through his church and pouring out preliminary wrath, as Romans 1 even talks about on the world. These judgments then can and do occur in different ways at any and all times throughout the course of this present evil age in which we live and don't necessarily proceed chronologically. We've learned that as we've read, as we see things repeat and take us back and then move us forward. Scripture teaches that, this, well, let me say this first. Only the seventh, I know this can get confusing, but only the seventh in each of these three cycles, maybe the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl, maybe, are are definitely showing us the decisive end of human history. Scripture teaches that the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, for the most part, are always happening at different times in this present age. The fact that the trumpet judgments are partial and the bowl judgments are total tells us that things can happen in a limited or partial way at any point in history between the first and second comings of Christ, those kinds of things can also happen in a more complete or thorough way in between the first and second comings of Christ, depending on where in the world we're talking about, what we're talking about, where in history we are. So in sometimes in places, these plagues of judgment on the unbelieving world are partial, they're restricted, while in other times and places, they're more widespread and eventually they'll be global they'll encompass everything so revelation isn't describing events that happen only right at the close of history it certainly does describe those but that's not all revelation is dealing with and and remember that remember that john has a specific audience that he's writing to and this information is as relevant for them as it is today for us So it's not only the events that happen immediately before Christ returns, but what characterizes history from his ascension until his return. I think the multiple sections in the book are recapitulating each other. I think that's what is happening in Revelation. They begin with the first coming of Jesus. They end with the second at the end of history. Each section gives us a series of um, these, you know, progressively parallel visions that increase in their effect and intensity as they get closer to the consummation at the end of all things. I believe Revelation is written with the principle, from the principle of recapitulation. So with that in mind, there's no doubt, really not among any of the commentators of Revelation, the different views, that the sixth and seventh bold judgments here in chapter 16 are bringing us all the way up to the second coming of Christ, to the end of history as we know it, and the beginning of eternity for us. So as we look at chapter 16 tonight, Satan will assemble all his forces for one last battle against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, where he will be finally, decisively, 
quickly as we read later, defeated, and our victory in Christ will be complete. So let me pray, and we'll try to walk our way through this chapter. Father, I thank you for your word. God, give us clarity tonight, Father, all of us, as we're trying to learn precisely what this book says and what it means. So, Lord, help me speak in a way that doesn't confuse. Lord, I I, I pray for the ability to uh, be heard if it is in accordance with your spirit. I pray, Father, that you would help all of us as we are either troubled or excited as we watch the world around us. And both reactions are understandable, Father. So I ask that uh, you would be with us, with your people here in our church for this generation of souls in the world today. We ask and pray for these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We read the first two verses here to start in 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels that we read about in 15, right? Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. If you can remember the beginning of 15, we are told very clearly that these angels are bringing about the last, the end of God's judgment. So verse 2, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So the first bowl judgment here echoes the Egyptian plague of boils, if you remember, right before the Exodus. Are these literal sores on the skin? Uh, Are they something more like the, the, the psychological, emotional, spiritual torment people suffered back in Revelation 9 and 10 by experiencing something like the sting of a scorpion, right? Both are possible, I think. I think both are possible. But I think this might be a metaphor for the multitude of infectious diseases that have plagued all mankind over these last centuries. Remember, we talked way back several chapters ago about the Black Death as one example, and its effect all the way back in the middle of the 14th century, the 1300s, where half of the entire population of Europe died during the bubonic plague. So mankind has been plagued with diseases and viruses and that certainly the worst of them being the ones that have open sores and all these types of things. All this has been happening to the world, sometimes in worldwide, global, cataclysmic ways and other times in more localized ways. But they are signaling to us that the end is arriving. And so the main thing that the pouring out of this bowl falls or the main thing about this bowl is that if you'll notice, it falls upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image here in verse 2. John's visions reveal, as we've seen, that anyone throughout history who worships and serves any god but the Creator is marked by their allegiance to Satan and is the object of God's wrath, while the Lord in turn has sealed His own with His Holy Spirit. So those that deny Christ and reject Him are marked as belonging to the beast, those who have embraced Christ by grace through faith are sealed, right? Those are very uh, biblically loaded terms to be marked and to be sealed. We understand what that means spiritually, and the Lord has sealed his people. But those that are marked by their allegiance to the beast, they will suffer and be destroyed. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. So this bull's plague, again, is based on the Egyptian plague that, if you remember, turned the waters of the Nile into blood. This is the same, but also very different from the trumpet judgment that affected a third of the sea earlier in Revelation. This plague, now in the bulls, affects all of the sea. Since the angel has said, with these, the wrath of God is ended on the earth. So in the trumpets, a third of the seas were affected. Now in the bulls, All of the seas, all the water on the earth, as we'll read here, are affected. So we see that the same plague, again, the same kind of plague, right? The the water turning to blood, the waters being damaged, can have a partial effect at one time, a third of the earth in the trumpet judgment, and a more complete and total effect at a later time in the bull judgment, as it's described here, throughout the time between Christ's first And second comings. This most likely refers, this first part of it here, 
to how the earth's waters have been polluted. They've rotted in many places. Much of the earth is without clean water. But then pick it up throughout the whole world. But then pick it up in verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. There won't be any good water. For they have shed the blood, or I'm sorry, verse 5, And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So realize again when you're reading here that the last part of that repeated phrase, who is and who was and who is to come here, the who is to come is taken out. You have who is and who was, not who is to come. It's removed because he's here, right? So that helps us understand where we are. The, the, the plagues of the bold judgments are climaxing here, climaxing here just before the return of Christ. This plague is also compared to the one on the Nile River in Exodus 7. Again, much like the third trumpet back in 8, 10, and 11, this plague speaks specifically about the suffering and death of those who are in the water, of those who rely on the water for profit in the world. Particularly, that would have been particularly Poignant to John's audience in the Greek and the Roman empires, right? In, in verse five, the angel in charge of the water. This is an angelic being to whom God has given sovereignty over the waters to carry out his judgment against the ways in which the world has profited from its use of the earth's water supply, using it to serve themselves and rather than God. And then in verse six, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. He's punishing everybody for this here. You've shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. It's a grisly image, but this is judgment. Judgment is going to be grisly. In some way, that means, in some way, maybe very literal, the way in which they suffer is likened to what they had inflicted on believers by being aligned with the spirits of the age. This is all, as we see in verse 5, though, An expression of God's holiness and God's justice. The angel does as God's command without question because God's judgments are true and they're just. Right? This is not unfair. This is not just cruel. The oppressors of God's people deserve exactly what they get from the Lord. God forgets nothing. Remember these words, beloved. Individual people and nations and authorities that persecute and kill Christians, they will be held to account. And if they don't suffer, if they miss this in this life, if they die before this is poured out in finality, they will stand before God's throne in the final judgment. So if one has not repented and received God's forgiveness in Christ, they will pay the price for their sins against his people for all eternity, having forsaken the payment Christ offered for them on their behalf. And so in verse 7, we're being told here that when all is said and done, there won't be any miscarriages of justice. Nothing is going to be unaccounted for. Nothing is going to remain undealt with, right? God's judgments are true and just, and they are total and complete and will bring everything to an end. What God pours out on those who have rejected him and harmed and killed his people is going to be completely in line with his truth and with his justice. And so we pick it up in verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Revelation chapter 7, verse 16, might shed some light on what this particular plague of judgment is. If you remember back in, again, Revelation 7, the reward of the righteous in heaven was the reversal of how they had suffered or what they had suffered and what they had lost on the earth. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Now, that set of believers in Revelation 7:16, it's echoing God's promise to his people in Isaiah 49:10. And Psalm 121, 5 and 6. So could it be then that this judgment, this scorching heat from the sun, refers to a reversal of their prosperity 
as earlier it was a reversal of the saints' suffering or a description of the saints' suffering. Economic hardship, right? The, the difficulty that brings poverty and thirst and starvation and a dwindling of resources. Who knows how that will be brought about, right? I mean, it's, isn't it amazing that after all this time and the sun and heat and humidity that amazingly a couple thousand cattle just dropped dead? A few weeks ago or last week or something. No chickens died. You know, no pigs died. Just the cattle. Who apparently the sun and humidity were totally new to them. Right? Totally big surprise. Over, what, a hundred food processing plants in the world have burned down in the last couple weeks. It's, it's, It's a total coincidence. It's a total coincidence. Right? Who knows how this will come about. We have to, like... We have to open our eyes. We have to open our eyes. So could it be that this scorching heat refers to the reversal of their fortune? Right? Given what we see in Revelation 7. And notice that the Bible doesn't shy away from the reality here. In verse 9, it's God who had power over these plagues. God is not hiding. God God doesn't want us to explain away these things to try to get Him off the hook. He's saying, no, no, no. I did this. I have the power over these plagues, as the angel attributes to him. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. God has the power. They are his will. They are his doing. So God is crystal clear, which now is a mercy to those who reject him, that they will suffer if they refuse to repent in light of his ongoing mercy that we live in now. So, And just so it's also clear in the text how hard the human heart really is, Not even the realization that God is the source of their suffering leads them to repentance. It won't do that, right? And that comes up again as we read here on in verse 10 and 11. The fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. How can this be? That's how hard the human heart is if God is not intervening, giving the gift of faith and saving. It doesn't matter what they see. And Jesus said, that, look, somebody could rise from the dead. They won't believe that either, right? Do you remember the plague against Egypt, again, of complete darkness over the whole land for three days, a darkness that could be felt, the text says. So, the That image, this plague, recalls that one on purpose. The Egyptians were plagued for worshiping their sun god, Ra, unrepentant humanity, so confident in its light and its goodness, will be plunged into utter darkness. The throne of the beast here in verse 10 represents the seat or the center of Satan's kingdom on the earth. The New Testament refers very often to darkness, the darkness in which unbelievers are lost and bound and grope and suffer. Jesus talks about this in John 3. But this is most likely a thick spiritual darkness that brings confusion and chaos into the world that only worsens as time goes on. We saw the darkness that we continue to walk in as unbelievers in Ephesians 2. The rejection of God has disastrous consequences for those who have given themselves to the evil one. In Scripture, darkness almost always symbolizes judgment as well as ignorance, wickedness, and death. We see darkness talked about to describe these things in the Old Testament prophets, in the Old Testament wisdom literature. We saw it this morning in Ephesians 4, right, that that the darkness increases. We remain in the dark. And the Lord is saying in Revelation chapter 16 that that will climax, come to a head at the end. It will intensify the darkness. And notice this darkness in particular frustrates and disrupts the beast's power. So this is a darkness, again, clearly from God. So it could symbolize internal strife and rebellion in the powers that be. It could represent, you know, or it could could lead to the loss of power. We know that this darkness is spiritual rather than only literal because darkness, darkness doesn't cause pain that leads to gnawing at our tongues. That's not what being in the dark 
does to people. Jesus says unbelievers love the darkness in John 3. So why does this darkness torment them to the point that they're chewing out their own tongues? Realizing here at the end without repentance that one is going to be separated from God and therefore has no hope in that state, that torments the soul for eternity, beloved. Which brings us to verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And now Jesus steps in and speaks. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on the righteousness of Christ, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them, those three, assembled them, all these armies, at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, this, very interestingly here, is a reversal of deliverance, so to speak. In the Old Testament, God had delivered his people twice by drying up the water. Do you remember? Of course, after the Exodus, the Red Sea, and then later at the Jordan River so that his people could cross on dry ground. Both those occurrences, the waters are dried up to deliver God's people. Here, the drying up of the Euphrates facilitates the attack on God's people from their enemies. In the 6th century B.C., God's judgment falls on Babylon. You can read about that in Isaiah 11 and 44 and Jeremiah 50 and 51. It came in the form of what? Diverting the Euphrates River, literally, which enabled the armies of Cyrus, of Persia, to enter the city and defeat it. The language here seems to be based on that pattern, which John is now going to apply to the world. What happened to one nation long ago, ancient Babylon, on a local and limited scale in judgment, foreshadowed what one day will happen to all nations on a global scale at the end of history. All throughout Old Testament prophetic literature, the image of kings coming from the east, from the region of the Euphrates, was standard prophetic language for the enemies of Israel coming to invade and to destroy them. For the Roman Empire, the Euphrates River marked the boundary between Rome and their bitter enemy, the Parthians. For the Jewish people, the Euphrates was always the boundary. Their enemies, if they wanted to attack them, mainly Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, they would have to come from the east. They'd have to cross the Euphrates. So when we read the kings from the east here, and how it talks about the kings of the whole world, this doesn't refer specifically or only to the armies of communist China somehow, right? That's just thrown it. There's a lot of nations in the East, right? This was a standard expression for anyone that tried to invade and conquer Israel. Notice in verse 14 that the kings of the whole world are now in view as this climax is not just one nation is in view here as those who assembled a wage war against God's people. So that phrase kings from the East throughout prophetic literature here in revelation is a prophetic way of describing the whole global conspiracy just before the return of jesus in which satan and all his forces will try one last time to utterly destroy the kingdom of the lord jesus christ verse 12 summarize the sixth bowl verses 13 through 16 give us the details and note right away the mockery of the trinity in verse 13 you have the dragon which is satan the beast, and then called for the first time here, the false prophet. Their deception is portrayed as the work of three unclean spirits like frogs. That calls us once again back to the Exodus and the Egyptian plague of frogs in Exodus 8. Ancient Jewish literature uh, pictured frogs as ceremonially unclean, of course, but also as agents of destruction, which is part of why God poured out that plague on Egypt. G.K. Beale, a commentator on Revelation, writes that the croaking of these frogs represents the confusion brought about by their deception. And notice again that the image of the frogs here 
is, of course, metaphorical. It's not literal frogs, since these frogs perform signs. In verse 14, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, then, will be able to use supernatural phenomena to deceive and sway human beings, including, most importantly, the kings of the whole world, to follow after them. And I I just, again... I don't know how to read the signs of the times per se, right? I mean, there are so many things that seem, again, the reason you read even in Scripture this kind of anxiety about the second coming is that since Jesus has ascended, any age of the church can make the case that it's the last one. It's, it's, again, it's all being recapitulated all the time because Jesus reigns. But near the end, it's going to intensify in such a way that there will be no doubt it's very close. Now, how close are we to that? Because it seems very, you know, there's a lot of tension in the world right now. Is, is that, is it, do we feel like it's the end because of the first time we've really seen the world like this? I can't say. But, beloved, all I would say is this. There are things going on in the world today that we need to stay alert and stay awake and lean into Christ. Regardless of what our view of the end times is, it would affect both are all the views of the end times. Please remember that Satan and his minions will be granted the power by God to do signs and wonders. Who knows what that is going to look like in the 21st century and beyond? I mean, who knows what they will be able to do and be able to concoct? And, beloved, you remember this. We Again, don't let a certain view of the end times, whether it's mine or someone else's, don't let that shake your confidence and your faith. All right, because however it shakes out, you and I are safe in Christ. Don't don't be afraid, but also don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. The world doesn't get to say how things are going to end. That's all, that that's God's prerogative. So if the world starts to tell you this is the end of us if we don't do such and such, they're lying to you. I mean Trust the word of God. Trust it over and above everything else. Don't buy into. Remember, they will be able to do things that will make us all wonder. My goodness. Right. And with the technology, do you know what? I mean, look, think about what they can do in movies. There's technology now where they can put my face on another person's body or head. And it, I mean, have you seen these videos on, on just go to YouTube? It's insane. It just is another person's face talking as you. It's, I mean, who, my goodness, who knows what they're going to be able to do. And all I'm saying is, don't put on a tinfoil hat. Just be vigilant. And I, maybe I've said it before, but I, I, I read something maybe a couple of weeks ago on, on one of the social media. I think this is so great. But it said the difference between the truth and a, cons- a conspiracy theory is about two weeks. I think that's good. But just stay, beloved, joking aside, stay vigilant, stay awake. God has given us enough to know what is what. Okay? So don't fall for it. Don't be afraid. Here, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet are out mainly at this point, when this comes, to deceive the kings of the whole world prophetically represented by the kings from the east who have always been pictured as God's enemies that have aligned themselves with the beast in deliberate direct opposition to God. Beloved, all the oppression and persecution of Christians around the world is fueled by Satan and his demonic forces. Always. They do more than persecute the church here, however. Their evil intensifies for this final war with God. So it's going to peak one day. They work, the the three, the evil trinity here works to build a conspiracy with the kings and leaders of all nations to utterly destroy the people of God. So when you hear me talk about how I believe that Christ is reigning now and Satan is bound, what I mean is, is not that he's bound, like he's not a lion roaming around the world seeking whom he may devour. Absolutely he is that. When, when, When I say bound, what I'm trying to explain from Scripture is that he's being kept from doing this right now. And I think Revelation 20 will show us that God will one day pull up that gate and let him out one last time to do that. 
and to end the ability of the gospel to reach all the nations trying to destroy the church once and for all. History is building to that great climax. So the word, and, and this, uh, th- this is interesting. The word translated battle here in verse 14 doesn't really capture the full force of the word in the Greek. And I know sometimes that can feel like a throwaway thing to say. Words matter, beloved, right? They, they, they really do. Literally, the text literally, and I don't know why we would change it. And all, all versions, most versions do this. So it's not, it's not like there's some secret, you know, conspiracy out the high. So I just don't understand it sometimes. It's literally for the war with a definite article in there, not for battle. It's the war. That lets us know that this is speaking of that final end time war yet to come that was prophesied even in the Old Testament in Joel 2.11, Zephaniah 1.14, Zechariah 14, 2-14. So that final big, huge, ending, climactic battle between God and His enemies. This is the last war that will end all wars. So it makes sense that in verse 15... You get this parenthetical exhortation from Jesus himself. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on. I love that. Hide in the gospel. The the garments here are the righteousness of Christ with which all believers have been clothed. Hide there. It will protect you and keep you safe. And alert that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Not by the world. They're all naked. God knows that. This is, you don't want exposed to God on the final day of judgment. You want to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Believers must be vigilant so that this day doesn't catch us unaware. Again, why would you say that to to people who are nowhere near that day? Why would you tell people to be vigilant for something That won't even happen for sure in their lifetime, right? So every age of the church is supposed to be thinking, okay, so this has been read since 30, like since 95 AD, beloved, the church has been reading this text. So every generation of the church is supposed to remember, that's right, okay, he's coming and he's coming like a thief. So blessed is the one who stays awake. So the church in every age, the pastors can say, the teachers can say, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, which means... Keep believing the gospel. It will protect you. Keep the garments of Christ on. Because again, like I said, we could study the world and try to figure things out. We could study these conspiracies and signs and, uh, you know, wonders and, and movements of government. And it's fine to do that. I, what I'm saying is we aren't going to get the answers we need from learning those things. This is as sufficient, again, for the believer in Indonesia that doesn't even have a church to go to or Morocco where less than 1% of the 3.7 million is Christian and it's, it's illegal to be a Christian. You have these tiny little house churches. Christ is sufficient in the gospel for them without any internet access or access to information. So this is, this is always, it is always possible. And since Jesus ascended, this could happen at any time. So he says to every generation of the church, stay awake, be vigilant. Okay, be vigilant. You don't coast spiritually on cruise control. Right, stay vigilant. And clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God is saying to all of us here, to his whole church, don't buy the lies of the world. Don't be deceived about what the world says can bring bring peace or why the leaders of the world say we have to band together and hold hands if we're to fight off our enemies, that's, that's what I think is probably going to happen one day. They're going to come up with some type of global threat that finally lets them, you know, create this giant, you know, Satan infested one world order against the Lord to destroy the church. They're, they're going to villainize us to be the threat to. OK, now I'm not I'm not helping at all. I'm talking. But that's that's, how, you know, I wonder in my head if that's how it's going to go down. Prosperity. Material success, even and please understand what I mean when I say this, the, like the American dream, that that will satisfy. There's no, nothing wrong with owning a home, pursuing. The, the, that's not what I mean. What I'm saying is 
even that, even that is still the world. It won't satisfy. It won't save. Don't buy, don't surround yourselves with false teachers who will tickle our ears and preach only the things we want to hear or like to hear. Remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he considered the earth right for salvation and for conquering. So we don't want this to be home. He didn't consider the world an ally. We don't know when he's coming. So stay alert. The location for this war in verse 16 is actually, again, Harmageddon, H-A-R-M-E-G-E-D-O-N. That's important because it's not technically Armageddon. That's a transliteration of a word. It's not literal. Har, H-A-R, is the Hebrew word for mountain. So we're not being told there's this final battle is a literal one-off battle at a literal site because there is no such place as the mountain of Megiddo. It doesn't exist. Megiddo was an ancient Canaanite city in the southwest region of the valley of Jezreel or Esdrielon. It was situated on a tell, yes, an artificial mountain, about 70 feet high. That's not much of a mountain. The valley of Megiddo, for what it's worth, has had several significant battles take place on it. Judges 4 and 5 and 7, 1 Samuel 29 and 31, 2 Kings 23, 2 Chronicles 35. Those You will see battles in the valley of Megiddo in those texts. So it makes sense that to his audience... The image of this place would be a sort of sim- a symbol for the cosmic end-time war between good and evil. William Mounts writes that geography is not the major concern. Wherever it takes place, Armageddon is symbolic of the final overthrow of all the forces of evil by the might and power of God. The great conflict between God and Satan, Christ and Antichrist, good and evil, that lies behind the perplexing course of history, will in the end issue in a final struggle in which God will emerge victorious and take with him, get us out of here, all who have placed their faith in him. This is Har-Mageddon. So think about how we've come to use... So what is he doing here with that word? What, think about how we have come to use terms like Waterloo. Or Gettysburg, or you know the the, the Guadalcanal, or the, you know the beaches of Normandy, Dunkirk, things like this. Those words now don't just refer to those specific battles. They're they're a they're a label for any type of great conflict or great defeat or great victory. Right? We we say things like that was his Waterloo. You know, um, this is another Dunkirk. Right? So also remember the this is this is very important. The plain of Megiddo itself wasn't even large enough for one army to occupy physically, let alone the armies of the kings of the whole world or just the kings of the east, beloved. It's, it's just not very big at all. And I like what, again, Sam Storm says here, Armageddon is prophetic symbolism for the whole world in its collective defeat and judgment by Christ at his second coming. The imagery of war, of kings and nations doing battle on an all-too-familiar battlefield. Megiddo is used as a metaphor of the consummate, cosmic, and decisive defeat by Christ of all his enemies. Satan, beast, false prophet, and all who bear the mark of the beast on that final day. Listen, I don't believe in my view of the end times enough to say I'm absolutely right and any other view is absolutely wrong. Okay? I, I don't believe that. So when you hear me use the word metaphor... Please don't think I mean the Bible isn't the Bible. Like that it's not authoritative, right? I believe we have to make a distinction in our minds between thinking, I believe, I believe the Bible um, says what it says. I believe the Bible says what it means, right? It means what it means. So sometimes we have to do some work to understand a text that, that the fact that if, if God decides, let's say it is some of it is metaphor and not literal. Let's say that. OK, which we know from other scriptures, that's that's OK. We're not saying the scripture is lying. We're not saying the scripture is wrong. Right. What we're saying is, is that God has given us a metaphor to explain something to us. It's no less his word than things that are absolutely literal. Right. So just keep that in mind. I, I don't I hope 
my view of the end times doesn't make you think I doubt or question the authority and inerrancy and infallibility of God's word. I do not. I do not. And by the way, beloved, if you have questions, just come and talk to me. All right. I had somebody come up to me last Sunday and say, man, a whole bunch of people have been coming to me telling me how worried they are that you don't believe in a in a rapture. And I'm thinking, why do they go to you? Come to me. Like, it, it's all, I'm, I don't bite. Like, I'm not, again, pr- the, the pulpit makes everybody look real tough. Okay? I, 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 I mean, I don't know if I look tough. I'm just telling you, like, if you think, like, what? What is, just, just, man, we can talk it out, I promise you. And we may leave agreeing, we may not, but we'll both be okay. I mean, it's, it's so don't, I just, I don't want you to, I don't want you to let maybe what are new thoughts or new ways to look at a text make us in any way believe that that means the text has changed or God's word is not the word. Beloved, I don't ever believe that. Okay, on that, you will always have my word. This is God's word. There are no errors, no lies, nothing wrong with it. It doesn't contradict. So just please understand that. All right, and like I said, man, if you're like, and I, I, I am actually working on that document I told you about. It just is like, wow, there's a lot to chew here, so I'm trying to write it well. But this is how, when we're reading here in these verses, 12 through 16, this is how human history, as we know it, is going to come to an end. God is on his throne. God rules over the universe. Jesus Christ is the true king of the world. So the world as we know it will end, but not by an environmental disaster or a catastrophic meteor from space, although that could happen. Or an alien invasion. Who knows, again, who knows what they can pull off. It will end by the word and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who will visibly and literally, that's not a metaphor, literally re-enter this creation and put an end to this world in its evil, cursed, fallen form. So we need to see here that the demonic spirits of Satan will be unleashed in an unprecedented way. They're loose now, but in an unprecedented way at the very end of the age to mount a global attack with all the leaders of all nations that will finally, finally unite to crush the church of Jesus Christ and wipe his name from the earth. But as we will also see, I'll try to be very quick here, they will fail miserably at this. So take heart. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. That was a quick war, right? That's beautiful. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And the descriptions of it later, Jesus, oh man, it's so good. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each. They're not covering that on your insurance. From heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. How are you not repenting? They won't, not when that day comes. So the full and final judgment is described to us in the imagery of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake. We've seen this imagery before in Revelation. That may, again, that is is probably literal, but whether or not it is is irrelevant here. It's not John's point. Again, how would natural phenomena the world has always seen cause the downfall of principles and ideas? How would it disrupt you know, the, the, the center of Satan's work on the earth. How would it, you know, this describes the final judgment that is coming against each individual and the world as a whole that has rejected God and his lamb. Just as in Old Testament prophetic literature, the prophet here uses the imagery of geographical, astronomical upheaval, right? It will be intense. It is done. This ends it in verse 17. The great city in verse 19 is not Jerusalem. It's not Rome. 
It's the city whose name throughout Scripture and history has come to stand for the whole world, united against God in Revelation. Babylon the Great. It's over. The embodiment of all the cities on the earth. Remember, all the way back in Genesis, the difference between sojourners and city builders. It climaxes here. Every political, economic, philosophical, moral, religious, and sociological power base that stands in opposition to Christ and his kingdom will be utterly trucked and boat raced and ended. So verse 20 again, you get the upheaval of the whole cosmos now. All right, we saw it back in 6, we're going to see it again in 20. There's a lot more to say here, I need to wrap it up. As we close the night, then, listen one more time to verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So, I would say to all of us, let us know that we have our faith in Christ for our salvation. Let us know that. And when I say that, I don't want you immediately to try to remember when you did that. Okay? And that, that's, it's not wrong. It's not what I mean. I mean, don't look to yourself to know that you're saved. Not even your decision for Christ, alright? Not saying you didn't make it or it wasn't real. I'm saying it's not the source of your assurance. Christ is the source of our assurance. We need to heed His word. We preach the words that we preach really at the end of the day, so that everybody has the right clothes for the last war and for that meeting with God that we all will have. What we plan on wearing to that is our statement of what we believe justifies us before God. And let's say we had no hope of understanding any of this except the fact that we would stand before God. The message, the exhortation would be the same. Do any of us, Christians included now, really think that the forgiveness of all of our sins will come about because we've done enough good deeds? Does it feel like on the day of this fury and this wrath and this glory that this little cup of what we can offer up will save us? Keep your garments on. Stay dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That's a metaphor for the truth that remains. I implore you to get properly dressed. I believe, as far as I know, everybody here is, but I implore you. Ask for your clothes from Jesus. When the wrath of this God finally comes, none of us wants a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, Philippians 3, 9. Repent, believe the gospel. Amen.